Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Back UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi, and thank you for taking the time to join me on the Relax Back UK show. I really do appreciate it. Um, please do remember to click the follow and subscribe button so you can keep up to date with all the shows. Today, the first topic is social care, and I chat with Lucy Campbell. She's chief executive of Right at Home, and they provide social care staff. We cover many topics within social care from where the staff come from. That's very topical at the moment as a quarter of staff in social care in the UK uh, are born overseas. Um, also, how to adjust, address the rising costs of social care. We conduct, conducted a little bit of a, a, a thought experiment on what, we sh what she would do if she was suddenly appointed Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Um, key on my agenda would be to make sure that there is proper regulation over commissioning so that um, there is a minimum price for home care being paid that allows um, providers to pay their valued, highly skilled workforce a, a, a rate of pay that, that they deserve. Lucy has plenty to say on the subject, so that's a great segment. Then another serious subject, breast cancer. I speak with Louise Stewart, a breast cancer survivor and consultant breast surgeon Fiona McNeil. Breast cancer is very serious, but there is some good news. If you take all women with breast cancer in the UK, survival now has improved by about 40% over the last two or three decades. The, 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 the um, improvements in care have been phenomenal over my lifetime as a surgeon. We discuss symptoms, treatment, screening, and much more. So please do stay tuned for a great show. Thank you. I usually tend to try and veer away from politics on this show, um, but for this particular topic, it's quite hard. The first topic is social care, and it is a big deal, and it does need the attention of some politicians. At the time of uh, recording and talking to my first guest, politicians only seem to want to talk about stopping the boats, meaning immigration across the channel on small boats. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a very important topic, but there are many more topics that are just as important, if not more so. Rishi Sunak said his patience is wearing thin on the topic of the small boats. I've got to say, I would like his patience to wear thin on some other things as well. Kind of, you know, crumbling schools, crumbling hospitals, crumbling infrastructure, water pollution, the NHS, many things including the first topic on today's show, which is social care. In fact, I started my chat today with Lucy Campbell, actually with a bit of a rant. On the school run, coming back from the school run this morning, uh, Suella Braverman was uh, on the radio, and uh, it seems like her and other politicians uh, only want to talk about... Um, small boatloads of immigrants coming into the country as if like there's nothing else that's sort of important to talk about and I'm thinking like the NHS transport mm -hmm. infrastructure schools falling down and indeed social care so I, I suppose the first question that really is 
all the politicians trying to pull the wool over our eyes and stop us talking and thinking about things that actually really do matter and actually that maybe they've made a bit of a mess up and they don't want anyone to notice yes i think um i think that would stand to reason you know we we heard um lots of promises um from cabinet members over the last 24 months in terms of really putting social care on the agenda um, and yet none of those promises have come to fruition. Um, you'll certainly be aware the King's speech um, completely disregarded um, social care. There was no mention of it. And then the Chancellor's um, autumn statement, um, you know, he committed to 110 measures, not one mention of home care, despite the sector employing 1.6 million really talented, skilled professional individuals which contribute to over 55 billion of UK domestic product and um, but you're absolutely right um immigration is absolutely dominating the the headlines um and yes probably a welcome distraction actually um from um, yeah. from some of the abysmal things that are coming out of the covid inquiry so i mean in, in some ways the future of social care and immigration can be linked and i'm sure we'll come on to talk about that but it just yeah it seems that politicians just think we're all stupid and that if they talk about something else these other things uh, will go away and we won't worry about them so anyway so apologies if I, I i sound a little bitter this morning but you just sort of caught me on a sort of bad day uh and i just happened to turn the radio on in the car at, at the wrong time so anyway back to sort of the uh, enough of my worries and, and concerns let's try and home in on the issues here why why is care at the moment and you know care of the elderly now and in the future um such a problem well i think um you know the the latest covid inquiry um you know almost almost kind of presents if you know the, these are new issues in fact you know we know that um the social care system has been in entrenched um with issues for a long time um the sector is is underfunded in fact um the home care deficit um report um suggests that the sector needs a 2.08 billion pounds worth of funding um just to just to support the 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 current the current needs and that is absolutely um a root a root cause of of the problem and um, the system is broken um you know but the the other this, key this, is, this, this is a year is it uh, just over two billion a year yeah absolutely um and of course you know the the other significant issue is is workforce um, and it's all linked because um, ultimately, um, in order to make a career in care an attractive proposition, we obviously need to pay our valued workforce well. Now, right at home, we're a private, predominantly a private home care provider, um, which we does, does mean we're in the fortunate position of being able to pay our caregivers well, certainly above the average um, and I can tell you, um, you know, I sit on the board of the Home Care Association with providers um, that operate in all parts of the sector. And there is not one that doesn't want to pay their valued workforce as much as possible. OK, but so you, you kind of, sorry, I interrupt, you kind of cited two major problems there. One is money and one, one is staff. So if we yeah. do a bit of a thought experiment, suddenly became Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Um, what would you do? And then on top of that, I was I was wondering actually who is that at the moment? 
uh, that's the right honourable um, Victoria and um, Atkins. She was um, she was appointed um, only on the thirteenth of November, um, which which may be why why you're not so familiar with her. Yeah, po possibly. Also, although it might be that not this stuff isn't been spoken about terribly much at the moment. But anyway, say you had her job tomorrow. <laughs> what, what what would you do to sort out the situation? Um, oh, that is the 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 million dollar dollar question. Um, I think you know, first and foremost, um, we know um the the number of over sixty fives is um is increasing um dramatically. Um, and in order in order to to meet the demand, um, workforce absolutely has to be has to be part of the solution. Now, in order for it to be part of the solution, we need to make um, careers in care an attractive proposition. So first and foremost, um, we we need to sort out the the commissioning structure. Um, key on my agenda would be to make sure that there is proper regulation over commissioning so that um, there is a minimum price for home care being paid that allows um, providers to pay their valued, highly skilled workforce a, a, a rate of pay that, that they deserve, giving them a similar sort of parity to esteem as the, as the NHS. Um, unfortunately, um, because some providers, as I was alluding to before, aren't able to pay their workforce as much as they would like, it gives the impression that a career in care isn't a well-paid profession. Um, and in actual fact, you know, obviously there are providers that do pay well, but it is an ongoing challenge. Um, there also needs to be a huge amount done on the education piece, um, you know, for the um, for the caregivers of the future, if you like. Um, certainly something we are focusing on right at home is actually really trying to talk about the wonderful career pathways which are on offer. Um, now linked to that, which would also be key on my agenda, would be a call for a much stronger integrated health and social care offering um you know with with dual dual commissioning um for for sure now um at right at home we've just launched a a new clinical offering and um, which means our valued and skilled workforce are providing tasks which um delegated tasks which would have been traditionally carried out in a healthcare setting or by by a district nurse um and what this does is it it gives our it gives our caregivers first and foremost wonderful career pathways for those that want to provide more more of a sophisticated offering um and um it does make does make the opportunity more more attractive to them um but certainly the feedback that we've had as well from those individuals is the training that they're being offered just makes them feel um feel a lot more valued actually and um oh. a lot more confident um providing care and support to the vulnerable adults that they support you you mentioned a couple of things there which I didn't quite get you you, you spoke about commissioning and how commissioning seems to put some sort of check on pay. I didn't quite follow that. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, so um, at the moment, um, there is no regulation um, over commissioning. So local authorities obviously receive funding from central government, but then really the decisions in terms of how much they can pay providers, be it on their framework or be it, you know, that they are a spot provider, is really down to the local local authorities. So, you know, you will see, um, you know, 
a complete disparity between um you know what a care provider in the north of England um might might pay and one one on one on the south coast um but quite often the um the rates of the rates um of of pay for home, home care um are not enough to allow providers to to meet the 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 requirements to pay their caregivers you know you'll be aware that the national living wage has just gone up to 11 pounds 44 and um, now that is welcomed however commissioners and providers alike are deeply concerned about their ability to meet the cost of a 9.8 percent rise in caregiver pay without substantial additional funding and um, is right. that clear yeah so is, is this talking about uh people that do caring in people's homes or in care homes as well or the whole lot it 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 is the whole the whole lot. Obviously, you know, I've very much got a got a home care hat on, but we're talking about the social care system and um, as a whole, and uh, we we absolutely need a blend of you know residential and and home care offerings. And um, of course, you know, I think home at first is something which is spoken about a lot. And um, I am of the belief that generally people do better in the comfort of their own homes, and um, particularly, um, you know, if they're suffering from um, from dementia, etc. We know yeah. that um, being in a home environment can have a really positive impact on them. But residential care absolutely has a part to play in the solution, and much must not be overlooked. Sure. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> You're kind of talk, talking about a massive injection of cash and also making the whole idea of working in care uh, more attractive. Another thing that's been sort of in the news recently, and this is bound up with what was upsetting me at the start of our, our chat and immigration. I, I was looking up how many carers are actually from overseas. And I, I came up with a number of 25 percent. That seems huge. Is that really true? I was just I Googling. Yeah, it's 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 not true for 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 right for right at home, um. But certainly, um, it wouldn't seem it wouldn't seem unrealistic unrealistic looking at the at the sector um as a whole, um. I think you know it's no no secret actually that overseas staff staff have been instrumental in reducing adult social care vacancies over the last year. Um, and that, I think that is why the sector is so concerned about these latest announcements around not allowing um, the immigrant workforce to to bring over their dependents. You know, the last thing our sector needs is another policy that's going to risk worsening our significant staff shortages and in turn, of course, increasing unmet care needs and pressures on the NHS. Well, so there's this idea if you can't bring any members of your family and then this other one, this earnings threshold of thirty-eight thousand seven hundred pounds. Does does that apply to uh, to carers? No. no. So fortunately, and that is very much welcomed. The the increase in the earning threshold um hasn't um hasn't been applied for for social care um, which which is certainly welcomed. But what isn't welcomed is about the restrictions on bringing dependents over. And we do believe that you know. UK needs to present itself as a more attractive place to work for social care staff. And this latest move is probably just going to achieve the polar opposite. Yeah, I think I agree. So so does that, do you think as a result of that, some of those 25%, um, you know, one person out of every four that works in the care industry will think about just going, <laughs> going away? Um, well, I think, um, you know, 
I'm not sure they they will all do, but I think it will certainly um give them give them need to to reflect and you know some of them will have personal circumstances you know if it's a choice between a job and being separated from their family um i know what most people would choose and that's an absolutely heartbreaking decision i don't think um you know they should they should have to be in you know these individuals provide such critical you know care and support and they're such a part play such an important part in assisting us to to meet the you know unmet care needs and as i've mentioned the pressures on the nhs um, I do think it could have a detrimental impact. And I think, um, you know, the government need to reconsider their position on this sooner rather than later. Yeah. Goodness me. All right. So we've, we've heard from you if you were going to suddenly be the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. You're not. You're running a social care company. So what have you got to say? How, how can how can social care companies get involved and be, uh, you know, help be a solution to this problem which is only going to get much bigger well it's interesting because i was attending a round table last week with a collection of um of ceos from various different um home care organizations and um, organized um by the home care association um, and one thing that that was talked about on the table is actually um why is this not high on the government's agenda? Um, and we think it's because they don't perceive it as being enough of a general public concern, because generally people only seem to really realise the challenges in terms of social care at the point at the point of need. Um, when you know issues are hitting the mainstream media, you know, the the, the newspapers, etc that's when you know government tend to take note more so so really one of the calls from from us in terms of what providers can do is i think we need a collective communication strategy to really get the key the key points on the table um to you know call call for the measures which which are, which are needed um so yes a collaborative um communication strategy um is is absolutely key um, you know, of course, you know, there wasn't a single person around that table that wasn't absolutely devastated by the fact that the Chancellor failed to mention social care in his autumn statement, you know, on the back of it not being mentioned in the King King's speech. Um, so we need to put pressure on the government to break its silence on social care. You know, there's still no news on what funding will be available to support the growth of our vital sector. No news on how we're going to address workforce shortages and meet the needs of thousands of older and disabled pe people. Um, you know, it's crucial that the government makes true on its promise, and it did make a promise to fix the social care system once and for all, and ensure that the continued provision of quality services is is sorted, because, yeah. you know, it is just going to be devastating, and um, the issue is not going away. You know, I think sometimes the government think of it as some sort of luxury, and it's it's not, it's essential, and action is long, long overdue. Yeah, I'm... So certainly one one of the major problems being staff, but I'm wondering if it, it could almost become academic because if if no one can afford it anyway, <laughs> no one can pay any of the staff, uh, you won't need the staff and the whole thing will just fall fall apart. And goodness knows what will happen to people that need care then. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think you know the you know 
we need to invest in education and employment, you know, to support its growth, to meet the needs of its ageing population. But, you know, social care is a vital part of the of the economy. You know, I mentioned before, 1.6 million people being employed, 55 billion contribution to UK domestic product. Um, but yet, you know, I think, you know, governments still really, really don't thoroughly understand the infrastructure of home care and um, you know that's that's been very very apparent in the COVID inquiry and I think you know one of the one of the main issues which I don't think gets spoken about enough and um, there's always there's, there's such a rapid shift in, in in cabinet and quite often the people who are making the decisions are so far removed from really understanding the operational challenges that our sector is really facing um, yes, they pay lip service, but actually really getting under the skin of it. Um, I think the government needs to invite, you know, more people to the table who actually really, truly are living and breathing the challenges that the sector are facing to support them to really, really shape policy for the better. Um, you know, one thing that we're doing at Right at Home and really calling on the sector to do is to really start to to approach the the shadow cabinet who you know may may come into power depending on the results of the election next year yeah. um to really invite them to take to take a different view and actually to engage with people that really do understand the sector to bring about the much necessary change I'd say that's very important. But has Victoria Atkins invited you in for a cup of tea, a little chat, ask her what he's doing? What do you think? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, not a dicky bird. Because I've got to say, if that was my job in the first month, I'd be thinking, goodness me, I need to pe talk to some people that are running this and actually know what they're doing. Yeah, um, one, one, one would think that would be the case for sure. For sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, to, to be fair, you know, there is occasionally, you know, token token visits um, from varying various cabinet members. Um, to um to go and to go and see what life is like out on the road so to speak um yeah. but they're few and far between and we never actually see you know any anything that's taken from those experiences actually influencing policy and critically influencing funding for the sector okay well we've we've, we've mentioned a little bit um what we think victoria could do um what about what about the rest of us if we're, we're worried about this there's a general election coming up uh you will Kind of mentioned it uh will labor do any better who should we vote um, for on this topic <laughs> well um you know i think all we can say is that the current government has um has almost completely you know disregarded social care i think you know because you know it has just it's failed um historically I think, you know, anybody who is, you know, who is who is looking to come into power from that particular party is shying away from from any commitment. Um, you know, will will Labour do do any better? Um, you know, I I I don't honestly know, but I think um, you know, what we do know is um the current government isn't bringing the solutions to the table. Change needs to happen. Um, so I think probably marginally more hope in um in a different party coming into power. Um, but I certainly wouldn't be holding my breath. Um, I've said um, you know, time and time again, you know, the it really needs to be the sector taking taking things into into its own hands. Um and particularly, you know, when I talk about the integrated healthcare agenda, I think, you know, social care can can take measures to start to really, really drive that drive that forward at a local level as well um, and really demonstrate to central government um, 
how how it should be um, seen as a feasible solution to to the challenges that the health and social care sector is facing. All right, the integrated um, system, I think, will be uh, another topic because I, I suspect we could uh, talk for a long time on that. So maybe we, we should make a date to talk on that. And I'll I'll invite Victoria Atkins along and see if she'd like to come uh, and, and, and join us in that, because I think we could have a very a useful discussion. I agree. I'm not holding my breath that she'll say yes, but if she does, um, I'm, I'm hoping you'll you'll come and join us. I would be delighted to. All right, look, Lucy, thank you very much indeed for chatting about this because it, it is important. It does affect a lot of people. It recently affected me. My dad had care at home. It all, Actually, for us, it all worked very well. Um, but it is a, a vital topic. So many thanks for spending some time chatting about it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The next guests are Louise Stewart. Uh, she's a breast cancer survivor and a former BBC correspondent and also consultant breast surgeon Fiona McNeil. And my first question to them was just how common is breast cancer? It's actually very common, Mike. Um, about 55,000 women a year are diagnosed with breast cancer in the UK. So it's one of the most common female cancers. Okay. Um, 55,000, that's a lot, yeah. It is a lot, and about 400 men a year as well. So we mustn't forget that there are some men who are also diagnosed with breast cancer. But as you can see, about 400 men, about 55,000 women. So lots of women diagnosed with breast cancer. So it's a very common diagnosis. It is one of the most common female cancers. Um, generally, it's in women, Mike most breast cancer is found in older women and women don't always aren't always aware of that they sometimes think because they're older they're not at risk but actually it, it, it's more of a diagnosis in, in an older woman but i'll okay. let you interrupt yeah we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that those sorts of questions later but in, in general terms what about the survival rate is, is there a sort of statistic for the survival rate or maybe that's a bit more complicated than that because there are different sorts and it's found at different times etc but you know what, what are your odds if you're diagnosed they're really good Mike nowadays I was just thinking about that when I was walking into work because I thought you might ask me that and when I started as a young surgeon survival was very poor but nowadays we can confidently say to a woman who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, for example, picked up on the screening program, so she's got early breast cancer, we can confidently say that the majority of women diagnosed with breast cancer will have a 90 to 95% survival, um, which is fantastic. And, and if you look at women just overall, because you're right, it does depend on the individual woman and what type of cancer they've got. But if you take all women with breast cancer in the UK, survival now has improved by about 40% over the last two or three decades. The, 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 the um, improvements in care have been phenomenal over my lifetime as a surgeon. Right. And so, so this is probably an impossible question, but what's that a function of? Have, you know, have surgeons got better? Have drugs got better? Or, you know, what's, uh, what's the main driver? Well, I'd love to say it was because surgeons were better. And yes, of course, it, that's one of the reasons surgery is better, but it's mainly drugs. 
it's mainly um, the fact that we now understand more about breast cancer and we understand what drugs we can use to treat breast cancer. So although surgery is still a very important part of early breast cancer, it's the addition of the drugs and radiotherapy. It's that combination of all of those treatments, the surgery, the drugs, and the radiotherapy that has resulted in the very successful treatment of breast cancer. I don't know if Louise wants to add something about this at this point, because Louise, you've been through it. Yes, um, I have. And I think that what was really heartening for me, obviously, when you get diagnosed, and I was diagnosed at a relatively young age, so I was um, 43, just about to turn 44, and um, I was diagnosed, and, and luckily it was early stage, but I did have two different types of breast cancer at the same time, invasive ductal carcinoma and invasive lobular carcinoma. So it was a real shock, but I think um, things have developed and changed so much since Fiona said, since even the 70s and 80s, that, um, you know, I've felt quite hopeful um, going right. through treatment. But I, I you know, I, I don't think we can take away from the fact that, you know, many women do still die of breast cancer in this country, um, almost a thousand a month. So um, the survival rates are much better um, and they're improving all the time. Um, but the early diagnosis is absolutely key. And I think screening is such a big part of that. And one of my friends um, who's come to many uh, appointments uh, to see Fiona with me, she was called up for her first mammogram uh, last week. And she said, you know, I don't know why anyone wouldn't go. I was in and out in 10 minutes. It's painless um, and it gives you peace of mind. And I think that's a really important message for people. Sure. So obviously diagnosis is, is very important. and is it fair to say that actually with all these wonderful developments in surgery and drugs, still the best thing is to get an early diagnosis. That's the thing that gives you the best chance of a good outcome. Is that, is that fair to say Louise or, or either of you really? Well, Fiona is the expert on this, but I would say so. And we see um, all the time at the moment um, worrying statistics about people who've maybe uh, not gone to the GP because we know it's difficult to get appointments at the moment post-COVID, people who've sort of um, waited. And we saw the very tragic results for um, the Girls Allowed singer Sarah Harding, um, and that was the case for her. So um, for my my case, um, I felt something wasn't quite right. I went to see my GP. Initially, they sort of ruled it out because um, they thought I was too young. Uh, I wasn't a smoker. It doesn't run in my family. Um, but I, I still felt it wasn't right. And I went back. And I think that's the lesson, really. If you feel something's not right, do make sure you get it checked out because early diagnosis will certainly give you the best chance of survival. Right. And that, that's particularly important in your case because your, your symptoms were slightly different to what one would imagine they might be. Is that right? Yes. Um, I mean, my symptoms, uh, um, Fiona would tell you this, she she's very aware of the symptoms, but mine were um, slightly unusual in that I kept feeling a nagging sort of pain in my left breast, which is not generally associated with breast cancer. Um, and I couldn't feel a lump, but I just felt something wasn't quite right. And I went to get that checked out. And um, that's what I would say to anyone. If you, you're the expert, really, I mean, something was giving me an early warning sign that I should go and see the GP. And I'm really glad that I did. So I think even if it's not a classic symptom, then you should you should get it checked out if you're concerned. Right. OK. And I, so 
coming on to that. Sorry. Sorry, Fiona, I interrupted you. Go ahead. I was going to say, Louise makes a really important point that the person who knows themselves the best is the woman herself. And if there's something she's not sure about, just get it checked. It's very straightforward to get your breast checked by somebody. Um, don't take the risk. Get it checked. So in, in Louise's particular case, you said there was no lump to discover, but it just didn't feel quite right. Are there other symptoms that people could potentially look out for? Um, yes, there are. Um, breast cancer has a number of symptoms. The most common symptom, Mike, is a lump. Um, some women, however, have very lumpy breasts, so it's quite difficult for them to distinguish one lump from another lump in their breast. And, and that comes back to what I said earlier. If you're uncertain as to whether you have a new lump or it's a lump that's changed, just get it checked out. Um, so lump is the most common symptom, but there are other symptoms. So for example, some cancers can pull on the skin a little bit, giving what's called dimpling. Um, and if a woman sees that, absolutely get that checked out. Unfortunately, as a woman gets older, you tend to notice more dimpling of the skin anyway, um, just with age and gravity. But Nonetheless, if you feel it's different or you're concerned, it, it does no harm to get it checked out. And another symptom of breast cancer um, can be bleeding from the nipple or the nipple looks like it's being pulled inwards. Right. And that can sometimes be a sign that there's a cancer behind the nipple. You may not be able to feel a lump, but it's just pulling the nipple in a little bit in the same way that it pulls the skin elsewhere in the breast in. Sometimes if it's behind the nipple, it can cause bleeding from the nipple. And, and sometimes you can get a rash on the nipple. Uh, it looks like eczema, dry skin. And most rashes on the nipple are eczema or dry skin. But occasionally, particularly in an older lady, it can be um, breast cancer. So these are the most common uh, signs and symptoms. As, as Louise said, pain or discomfort actually on its own is very a sign of breast cancer but if somebody gets a pain and they've never had pain before then yes get it checked out because you might have an early breast cancer and that will be detected and then can be successfully treated. I have to admit to a, a slight amount of uh, prior knowledge actually now I'm, I'm not a medical person at all but my wife is uh, a cancer research scientist and she was putting a grant together recently which she didn't win actually but the work is, I'm sure, happening somewhere, looking at breast cancer in people from different ethnicities. Yeah. And uh, you know, and the thing was, she was saying, that actually, it can be quite difficult to spot in, 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 in black people or people uh, from India, what have you. Is, is that something that you've come across at all, uh, either of you? Um, shall I take that question, Louise? Yes, yes. I, I look after lots of ladies with all different skin tones. Um, from very dark to very pale. And to be honest, a lump is a lump, regardless of a change in a skin tone, a, a difference in a skin tone. And also on a mammogram, mammograms are looking internally. So once again, a cancer will be detected on a mammogram, regardless of a woman's skin tone. There, there are some types... It wasn't all of, about skin tone, actually. Sometimes it was about density of the breast, which can cause mm. problems in scanning, I think. 
Yes, it can do. Absolutely. There are some very rare types of breast cancer, Mike, for example, inflammatory breast cancer. And that's a very rare type of breast cancer that presents with redness on the breast. And anything that presents with redness is more difficult to see on somebody with a darker skin tone. But generally, there are other signs and symptoms that would alert a healthcare professional to the fact that the breast was not a healthy breast. Um, coming to breast density, yes, um, breast density is a risk factor for breast cancer. It's where you've got a lot of milk gland tissue. And when you have an x-ray taken of your breast, you get a sort of whiteout or a fog. I don't know how to describe that. And so sometimes it's difficult to see cancers in women who've got very dense breasts. And so sometimes you're at risk of missing a cancer. And so women who've got dense breasts, we tend to do special types of mammograms for them now. And sometimes we add in an ultrasound as well, just to help give a little bit of security to the breast check. And, and that may be something that Louise might like to add something about. Yes. That that's what happened um, for me actually. The um, my um, tumor didn't initially show up on a mammogram because um, I had dense breast tissue and um, was was you know relatively young for for having breast cancer. So they used an ultrasound and that did show it up. But on the um, it's an interesting point you make, Mike. And I do think I'm an ambassador for Cancer Research UK, and I have been um, since um, I joined the ambassador program following my treatment. I think they do incredible work, and one of the important things they really do is raise awareness because there has always been a stigma around, particularly Asian communities, where health issues are not so commonly talked about. Um, so getting women to come forward for screening has always been harder. So anything that raises awareness of cancer um, amongst ethnic minority um, women, as well as um, the general population, has got, is welcome, I think. Sure. Well, actually, now might be a good time to ask about screening and, and scanning. What is the current situation in the UK for women get invited to come in for a mammogram? Um, shall I take that one, Louise? Yes, or... yes, Fiona. So women are invited for mammograms every three years, Mike, and they can be called for any time from their late 40s, 49 to around about 52, somewhere in that window. So generally from about 50 onwards, every three years until their early to mid 70s. Then right. after that, women are not, they don't receive a request for a mammogram, but they are entitled to request their own mammograms. And that's something that's not always fully understood by all women. Um, so some women think, oh, well, I'm no longer being called for a mammogram. So that means I can't be at risk anymore. Otherwise, the government would call me. But in yeah. fact, as I said to you earlier, Breast cancer is a disease of older women. So it's really important that if a woman is not called, she's in her 70s, she actually requests her mammograms. The reason for not calling women is quite complex, but it's really important women continue with their mammograms. If they're well enough to do so, then they can just request them their own mammograms every three years. So my wife's been for a couple of mammograms and she's described it as really quite, um, quite unpleasant. But what um but what is it actually is it an x-ray or 
What is a mammogram? Yes, it's an x-ray. The breast is placed on an x-ray plate um, and it is compressed between another x-ray plate. So I think is... that's the bit my wife was referring to. Yes, I think so. And some <laughs> women do find that, you're right, Mike, some women do find that uncomfortable, but most women don't. Um, and Louise, I know, has um, direct experience of this. So Louise... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've had a lot. I've had a lot of mammograms now um, over the past seven years. Um, and I would say, um, you know, it's moderately uncomfortable for um, it's really seconds. I mean, by the time um, they've set it up and they press the button to take the image and uh, Fiona um, described it to me as almost like when you get your blood pressure taken and the cuff right. is kind of blowing up and then just before they release it you feel that slight pinch and you think oh um, you know that's that's a bit of a pinch and then they release it and the um I suppose the relief is immediate so it's certainly not anything to worry about and you're in and out I mean um I'm always surprised how quickly I'm in and out it's literally um minutes and the time you're compressed for is probably seconds rather than minutes Okay, that's good to know. But I do, I do know some countries are, are using them less often or have even sort of stopped using them. I think Switzerland, they're using them less often. What, what's going on there? Is that because they're worried about uh, exposing women to x-rays or something else? Or what's, ha what's happening there? Um, shall I answer that one, Louise? Yes, yes, go ahead. Yes, not all countries have screening programmes, Mike, you're correct. Um, most of the European, the, the first European country that set up screening was Sweden. And so most um, European countries have national screening programmes, but not all of them. And Switzerland is fairly unique in that. Um, I think they had one, but didn't they, they stop using the mammograms? From no, it varies from canton to canton in yeah. Switzerland. Okay. And it remains... <laughs> controversial even in Switzerland so we perhaps better not get sucked into the politics behind that Mike um, but over the age of 50 mammography has been shown to reduce the risk of a woman dying from breast cancer right. and so that's why it continues in the UK but I think there are downsides to breast screening and I think perhaps that's what you're getting at Mike um, and well, actually, of... in my case, it's a, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I just Googled a little bit before we chatted. <laughs> so I, I'm ready to be uh, corrected on any of this stuff. Yeah, now, no, Fiona gave me good advice when she was treating me, which was don't rely on Dr. Google. You know, if you go yeah. down that rabbit hole <laughs> of research, then uh, always listen to the experts. Yes. And, and unfortunately, healthcare can be highly politicised for all sorts of reasons. Um, but the benefits of breast screening, in my personal view, might far outweigh some of the downsides. And breast screening, because of early detection, to me, one of the most important things that early detection achieves, not only does it reduce your risk of dying from breast cancer, but it means you're less likely to have your breast removed. You might still need surgery, but because the cancer's smaller and earlier, you're much less likely to have your whole breast removed. And you're much less likely to require some of the more radical drug treatments, such as chemotherapy. So for me, that's a powerful driver in, in having 
checking my mammograms because I don't want a mastectomy and I don't want chemotherapy. So by having early detection, you're less likely to need those other treatments. Yeah, okay, and I'm sounds... a case in point from that because um, my um, tumours were found fairly early stage and I had surgery, which um, uh, Fiona carried out. Um, I had wide local excision, both sides, which probably is better known as a lumpectomy. Um, followed by radiotherapy so I didn't need a mastectomy and I didn't need chemotherapy so um, I think if if you're able to catch it early it can really um, improve your chances and lessen the sort of harsh treatments that you might need otherwise. Yeah so Louise what, what stage are you at now? Are you, are you you're cancer free that's it end of story job done? Yeah, I'm in remission and um, very grateful to be so. And uh, I recently saw Fiona and that was seven years in, in which seems remarkable um, where that time has gone. And I'm taking a drug called tamoxifen, which is um, a drug which is very effective in people like me who their cancers were sort of growing on hormones. Um, so estrogen positive, uh, progesterone. So therefore, I'm on that drug. Um, I've been on that since my um, surgery and that's really um, I think to to try and prevent any cancers coming back okay all right very good all right well look good luck with that um, I think maybe one final thing that's it's probably very useful to cover is because we, we if people are listening and they are worried thinking oh goodness actually I have one of those symptoms that they they mentioned or you know someone I know has those symptoms um what should they do next and where can they get more information? Yes, I, I think we can both answer that one, can't we? Mm. So yeah. if, if a woman is concerned about her breasts, the best thing to do is first of all, see her GP or practice nurse um, and get a referral. And they, a woman can get a referral on the NHS or she can go privately. The NHS runs a fantastic service where women will be seen within two weeks of being referred by the GP. If it's not precisely two weeks, it'll be close to two weeks. And most breast units on the NHS are incredibly efficient and high mm. caliber. Um, some, some women prefer to go privately and that's a personal decision. But the speed is no faster in the private sector. It's just a slightly different experience. Louise, what what would you say for that? Yes, exactly. So um, when once I'd um, been to my GP and said that I was concerned, they referred me to um, a breast clinic at the local hospital. And um, I went to the breast clinic and within a, a couple of hours, I was seen and I'd gone right through the system from being examined to having a mammogram to having an ultrasound. I had a biopsy at the same time and when I came out they did introduce me to a, a Macmillan nurse at that stage so I thought well this wasn't the greatest sign. <laughs> um, I had to wait a week for my um, results but really from start to finish it was within a three-week period of um, going to the GP and getting a diagnosis. And it was at that point then um, that I was referred to Fiona and I had some further testing. I had an MRI scan, which is where they found um, the other type of cancer in the other side. So um, I had quite sort of comprehensive 
testing, I think, um, which I'm grateful for. But yes, I mean, the, the NHS was certainly very quick to react and um, the system was seamless, really. All right. And, and, you know, speed really does sound like the name of the game there. So you, you were well looked after. Yes. And I think it's it's not just the speed at which um, you're treated for someone. Um, I know when I when I was diagnosed, all I could think of, I didn't sleep for the first three weeks because all you think of is I've got a tumour growing inside me and I need it removed. And you're not thinking really particularly logically about it won't make a difference if it's another day or another week. You just want it out. And I think that the speed with which you're, you're seen is is really helpful in terms of diagnosis. But I think it's really helpful in terms of the patient journey as well. Good, good. All right. Both of you, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Um, I hope that will be useful for you know people who are worried about this sort of stuff. So so many thanks. Thanks very much indeed, Mike. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were Lucy Campbell, Chief Executive of Right at Home. We were talking about social care. And then surgeon Fiona McNeil and breast cancer survivor Louise Stewart. We were talking there about breast cancer. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening and have a healthy week until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.